Beloved, as we continue worshiping this morning, we invite you to turn in your Bible or Bible apps to the words of the first letter of the Corinthians, chapter 9, beginning in verse 7. Let us receive the Word of God. Who, at any time, pays the expenses for doing military service? Who plants a vineyard that does not eat any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not get any of its milk? Do I say this on human authority? Does not the law also say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Or does he not speak entirely for our sake? It is indeed written for our sake. For whoever plows should plow in hope. And whoever threshes should thresh in hope of a share in the crop. If we have sown spiritual good among you, is it too much if we reap your material benefits? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we still more? I do it all for the sake of the gospel so that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race, the runners all compete, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win it. Athletes exercise self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly, nor do I box as though beating the air, but I punish my body and enslave it so that after proclaiming to others, I myself should not be disqualified. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. Good morning to Reverend Ginger, to my dear friend Guy Cecil, to the congregants and the lay and the people of Foundry United Methodist Church. Thank you for having me this morning. I bring greetings from my pastor, Reverend Ralph Thompson at Columbia Drive United Methodist Church in Decatur, Georgia. I have the distinction of being what's referred to as a double PK. Uh, as Reverend Ginger pointed out, both of my parents are ordained ministers in the United Methodist Church. They are both retired now, but during their tenure at Emory University, I got to know quite a bit about theology school because neither of my parents were prolific typers, and I became their official typist for all of the papers they had to turn in during their tenure in graduate school. I know more about Barth and Tillich. I actually know what an exegesis should be, and I know what I am not. 
And so while I am honored to be here as a guest speaker, I come from a family of amazing theologians and pastors. And when I thought about today's message, I turned to one of those pastors. I turned to my mom. You see, I'd been thinking about a scripture that would help me tell the story I wanted to tell today to deliver the message I wanted to deliver. And as I thought through scripture, one kept resonating for me. First Corinthians chapter nine. And I want to thank John for such a wonderful reading of it. I did not include this in the opening part of the scripture, but when Paul begins this lament of his, he opens with this question, am I not an apostle? You see, this is during a time when Paul and Barnabas are being denied access to the fullness of their service. They are not being treated as the other apostles are. They are not allowed to bring their wives with them. They are not being fed and paid. And Paul is not saying he necessarily wants more money or more prestige. He's simply saying, I need to be treated like others of my station. I need to be treated as I am accorded. And for some, that seems an unnecessary ask. In fact, the entire letter seems to be premised on this sort of rhetorical device of, is it not true that these things should be done? But the problem is that during Paul's time and during so many times in our American history, what should be rhetorical has actually become a very urgent question. You see, Paul asked, am I not an apostle? And in 1851, Sojourner Truth facing slavery, facing sexism, facing a racism and a nation that denied her humanity, she answered with her own lament, ain't I a woman? She went on to describe what it meant to be a black woman in that time to give birth to 13 children sold away from her, being expected to carry the weight of a man and the responsibilities of a woman and to be treated as less than both because of the color of her skin. She demanded of those gathered in Akron, Ohio, she demanded to know, ain't I a woman? The reality being though, she knew who she was. More importantly, she knew whose she was, as did Paul. And for Paul and for Sojourner Truth, the questions they are asking are really exhortations for action. But the story kept resonating for me because I was thinking about my mother. My mom and my dad are both United Methodist ministers who answered the call. And when they received their license to preach, my parents had very different experiences. Although they were the same age, there's only a month that separates them. They were both trained by the same church. They were trained in the same school. And yet they were treated differently when it came time to enter the pulpit. You see, my father, because he's a man, was always welcome whenever he showed up. They believed that he had the right to the fullness of his responsibilities. But my mother was treated differently. I remember time and again watching my mother being denied access to the pulpit. And there's a, a story she tells of a time when she first moved back to Mississippi after graduate school, after being fully ordained, after being called back to Mississippi to serve, where she and, and my father and her parishioners were invited to a church to participate and perform. The choir was going to sing and my mother was there to support 
this activity. And as is the habit, she entered through the back of the church going towards the pastor's study where clergy gathered prior to going and being seated in the pulpit. Only my mother was intercepted by the pastor who let her know on un know in certain terms that his pulpit did not admit women. That the Lord may have called her, but he didn't acknowledge the legitimacy of the call. He told her she was not really a pastor. In fact, they used to have these sections of the church that they would leave open for lady evangelists because they refused to accord her the truth of her calling. And my mother, when this would happen, would have to make a decision. Would she stay or would she go? Would she acknowledge the hurt and the ignominy or would she quietly keep it to herself so that she could continue to serve? And on this occasion, my mother decided she was going to leave, but she wasn't going to ask her church to leave with her. They had made a commitment and she wanted that commitment to be honored. But my mother, when she told her parishioners where, where she was going, was surprised to watch them all say, if you're not welcome here, we're not welcome here. And they left with her. I remember another time where my mom and dad were both invited to a church. I think it was for a revival and my father was ushered into the pulpit and my mother was denied entry. And I remember watching my father stand up and not only leave the pulpit, but gather us up, the six of us, and take us out of the church with my mom because he wanted us to see that the question wasn't rhetorical for him that my mother was a pastor and was due that respect. This sits with me because we are in a moment as a nation where we're asking ourselves the question that Sojourner Truth asked, that Paul asked, that my mother asked, only we have millions of Americans asking, ain't I a citizen? Am I not a member of this society? Am I not due more because of who I am? As we talk about the blessings of liberty, as we celebrate who we are as a nation, as we try to struggle through this COVID pandemic, we are supposed to be drawn together by our common bonds. And yet we watch those who are elected to serve us do their very best to break those bonds, to deny the legitimacy of our citizenship. I've had a little bit to say about it in the last few years, but I've been thinking about it for a lot longer. You see, I grew up in Mississippi where there is a monument to the Confederacy called Beauvoir. It's the last home of Jefferson Davis and it sits on the Gulf Coast. It is a celebration of everything that went wrong with our nation in the 1800s. It is a celebration of an attempt to divide our country because they did not believe that people of color, that black people were human, let alone citizens, that the rhetorical question of aren't I a human had been denied so vociferously that it tore a nation asunder. And although we are years past centuries, a century past that initial conversation, we are still having the argument today about who counts in America, who deserves the title of American, who is entitled to the blessings of our liberty. And for those who are at home at Foundry UMC, you are very, very familiar with this conversation as those who are actually citizens of the District of Columbia, you keep asking for the right of citizenship that come along with the responsibilities of taxation and representation. 
for those of us in the states that are facing voter suppression legislation that keeps pouring down like floods against us. We keep asking, should our vote not count? Should our right to be heard not be real? Are we not citizens? And for those who are about to undergo across this country the travails of redistricting where we are cordoned off so we can work together to elect people who hear us and who see us and who believe in us, we have to ask if the quality of our citizenship matters when politicians try to draw us out of power. We are asking ourselves in a very secular way, am I not an apostle? Am I not a citizen? Do I not belong? When I think about the right to vote, when I think about the access that comes along with voting, I'm often reminded that this is a secular activity. And I was talking to my mother about it, Reverend Carolyn Abrams. I, I said, sometimes I feel a little awkward in church spaces having these conversations. And she reminded me that the casting of a vote is a very sacred duty. That indeed, when Judas betrayed our Lord and Savior, when they had to replace him, Jesus Christ had selected the first apostles, but that the remaining apostles, they voted on who would replace Judas and they elected Matthias. If the act of replacing an apostle is not a sacred duty, if the act of electing those to speak for us is not a sacred duty, I do not know what is. And so I think about why we vote and why voting to me is the call that I answered. It's the animation of my soul. It's the animation of my activity. It's because for me, it is a sacred responsibility because it is how we live out the call of our Lord for justice and for mercy. You see, in a society, we organize ourselves. We organize ourselves in small pockets that we call districts and in larger configurations that we call states and in a massive agreement that we call the United States of America, we have organized ourselves to serve this credo that as a society, we think that you shouldn't go unhoused and you shouldn't go unclothed, that you shouldn't starve to death in our streets, and that illness should not take you from us when medicine can keep you here. And yet we find ourselves having this constant argument about whether we're going to be the people we say we are. And one of the most formal ways we engage in this argument is through the act of voting. But when we vote, we are voting on whether or not we are going to meet our obligations of justice and mercy. If you look at verses 11 through 12 and verse 23 of that letter from Paul, what he says is, if we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. And what he's saying there is that if we do the work, if we're willing to put ourselves into it, should we not be able to see the legitimate benefits of our participation? If we are willing to put our shoulder to the wheel, should we not benefit from the harvest that we reap, if we are willing to support our fellow Americans, should we not expect from them the same? And then if you go to verse 23, Paul reminds us, I do all of this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. You see, we are in the midst of a moment 
where we desperately need to share in the blessings. We have a pandemic that is ravaging our nation, that is ravaging our world, that is killing our people. And while there are those who are refusing access to a vaccine, we cannot forget the hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, who simply can't get it yet because they can't take time off from work. They can't take time off from family to get sick so they can get better. They don't have the opportunity to say that it's not that they don't want it, it's that they can't afford to get it. They can't tell their boss, I need to take time off because we are a nation that doesn't guarantee paid sick leave. They can't say to their children, well, I can't take care of you this weekend because I need to get the shot because their children are too young and many of them aren't eligible for the vaccine just yet. You see, we live in a time when the blessings of liberty are not being shared equally. That those who are incarcerated, not because of their bad deed, but because of a system that says that you have to be able to pay for your justice, a bail system that continues to wreak havoc on communities, a justice system that sometimes simply seems to be an injustice system that determines the quality of your access based on your skin color and your region of origin and whether or not we think we like you. In fact, it was a Republican governor who I served with in Georgia who put it out to me this way. He said to all of us, do we put people, do they get their justice based on whether we're mad at them or afraid of them? We live in a time where immigrants are cowering and hiding because they're still too afraid to step up and say, we are here and we need to be served as well. But we will give of our own in turn. We live in a time where fires and floods are ravaging our nation, where we have extreme droughts that are questioning whether or not we will make it another year, another decade, another century. And we are seeing inaction because there are those who don't believe it matters if it happens to those they don't see and they aren't near. We vote not for our sake, but for the sake of our people not for government's sake, but for people's sake. We vote because it is how we say aloud who we intend to be as people. And if those who are entitled to a voice are denied that voice, they are denied their humanity. They are being denied much in the way that Paul was. They're being denied who they are entitled to be. And so we come to the responsibility, the responsibility of action. You see, we have this opportunity in this moment if we fight for the right to vote, if we fight for fair districts, if we fight for states' rights for the District of Columbia and the territories that have been held by this nation for far too long without full representation, we have the opportunity to answer Paul's non-rhetorical question. But we've got three jobs. Our first responsibility is to lift our voices, to tell the people who are in power that silence is not consent, that we demand of them an action that will change the future of our nation, that will cement the truth of who we are, and that will tell us all that, yes, we are Americans. Yes, we are entitled. Yes, we are citizens. But we also have to speak to the powerless, who for too many times have seen themselves shunted aside and dismissed and denied. And we have to make certain that we don't mistake their despair for apathy. 
We've got to do the work of ensuring that in every election, at every moment, that we are engaging them every single day. And this is not about whether you live in a blue state or a red state or a purple state, it is if you live in the United States. Because citizenship isn't just the presidency, it is whether or not you have a school board that cares for your children and a city council that picks up your trash and a county commission that does the work of ensuring that zoning laws reflect the needs of your community. We've got to talk to the powerless. And for the power adjacent, those who fall somewhere in between, we've got to engage them and remind them that they have the responsibilities, the same responsibilities of every citizen that even though it's not their problem, it will be if we don't get this fixed. I, I, I say to folks who tell me they're not into politics, look, you may not be into politics, but politics is really into you. And for the power adjacent who think it's not my problem, I get to vote. It takes me 15 minutes. I, I have the vaccine. I got my appointment at CVS. We have to remind them that there are too many at the top who are making it hard and too many at the bottom who can't see their way through. And we are responsible as the power adjacent to getting good done. So first, we have to lift our voices. But secondly, we have to work our hands. We have to work our hands to ensure that every single child in America who is entitled to the child tax credit gets access to it. We heard stories about those transformative $300 checks, but the problem is there are immigrants children who are in mixed status families who don't know that the monies are theirs and we've got to make certain they get access. We've got those who need access to that vaccine but they don't know how they're going to get it. So we need to be making certain that we're going into community, not assuming they're hesitant. We need to assume they are hurting and we're willing to help. And we've got to do the responsible thing when it comes to voting rights and voting education, ensuring that as every election rolls through, as every conversation is had, as Congress decides whether we are truly going to be a democracy, that we hold every single one accountable. We have to lift our voices and we have to work our hands but ultimately we have to defy convention. This week I had a chance to talk to the Texas delegation that is in exile. And when I thought of them, I thought of my mother. You see that decision to leave the church, the decision to leave Texas was not about being upset. It wasn't about not doing what's right. It was about knowing that motive matters. That if the motive is wrong, what you do next matters. And what Texan, Texas Democrats did was say that if you're going to try to steal the voices of our people, we will not help you do this. What my mother said is if you're going to deny the call of, my, of our God and say that I am not worthy, then I'm not going to help you by saying it's okay. We have the responsibility sometimes to deny and defy convention because sometimes convention is just wrong. Sometimes convention is simply in place because no one has had the temerity to say no. And that's what Paul ultimately is telling us in those last verses about running the race. You see, what he says is that, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one gets the prize? So run in such a way as to get the prize. And what I hear from that is that the way to get the prize is to make sure we're all in this together that we are defying the conventions that may tell us that if we just sit still, it'll get better, that if we just wait, it will get done, that goodness will prevail, that better thoughts will prevail. It doesn't work that way. If it worked that way, Paul wouldn't have had to have this conversation and neither would Sojourner Truth, neither would my mother, neither would every single American fighting for access to the right to vote.
And so as I close, I, I bring you to this last line, this last moment that Paul says. He says, no, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. If we want to ensure and endure and enjoy the blessings of liberty, we cannot be part of denying those blessings to others. Foundry, you do work every day for justice and mercy. You do work every day to ensure that others are entitled to the full benefit of who they are. And I'm here today to remind you that what you do has a long lineage, a strong and noble history, because we are all apostles. We are all called by the Lord's grace to do his good. And if we do that good, justice will be won. Amen. Amen.